Okay, good evening everybody. Good evening. I'll make sure my audio is working on the stream here. It appears to be. That is very exciting. Good evening everybody. Welcome back to... Oh, don't work on it. Okay, sorry. Here we go. All right. Excellent. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, my name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and I am very glad to be joining you again this evening as we continue uh, our introduction to Bree, having arrived at Bree and returned. Uh, I, um, Mike, on the discussion board, made a really interesting parallel thinking about um, and except, you know we kind of talked about this a little bit last week but we didn't really mention I didn't really mention this one element or sort of talk about it this way but Mike was comparing the time that they spent in the old forest and at Tom Bombadil's house and in the Barrow Downs as like a trip to fairy and now Brie is sort of a return to the real world, world and he's thinking about um, you know basically kind of what you know how might Sam's perspective be kind of different, right? You know, we'd see his uh, uh, apprehension as he's coming into Bree. Um, you know, what might have happened had they just actually gone by road, you know, straight from one sort of mundane world to the other. But, you know, Mike, that's a really, it's, it's a really great way to be, um, to be thinking about it because I, it, it is very much like that. When they return to the road and Tom Bombadil leaves, right, and they start realizing the Black Riders are, you know, going to be around them, you know, at any time or something like that. It's uh, it's very much like a return to the, to mortal lands and stepping out of fairy, right? And Bree is, you know, Bree is, Bree, you know, there's there are dangers in Bree, and of course the Black Riders are a serious danger, but um, but it is there is a different quality to it uh, than there was in the old forest, and I think that that's uh, that's definitely a really interesting way of uh, uh, of thinking about it. So, um, okay, uh, so let's um. Uh, let's head back to the text uh, here. Oh, I, actually, hang on a second. Before we head back to the text, uh, a uh, uh, a quick announcement uh, because I have a, a fun uh, Lotro event announcement. So you may remember that I made a promise some time ago, back during our fundraising campaign, uh, that I would do a fried chicken run. That is to say, that I would run in the form of a chicken from Mickle Delving all the way to Mount Doom uh, and uh, cast myself into the cracks of Doom. Uh, and the time is now coming. Uh, we are going to uh, run from Mickledelving to Mordor, and this is going to happen on Saturday, the 17th of February. So a few weeks from now, what is that? A little under three weeks from now? Um two weeks from this coming weekend is when we're going to be doing this on the 17th. So we're going to, we're planning to start at 11 PM or 11 PM. <laughs> no, not even I'm going to start a chicken run at 11 PM, 11 AM on Saturday, the 17th. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I plan to be, uh, uh, running my little avian legs off across, uh, middle earth for most of the day there. Um, I encourage you guys to join me if you have, uh, uh, performed the prerequisite chicken quests 
and are free to roam uh, in the form of a chicken across Middle-earth. You could come with us in the form of a chicken. Uh, if not, uh, you could uh, come with us uh, and accompany us as a, an escort of the chickens. Um, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, and it sounds to you like I am speaking in tongues right now, I encourage you to to, to come because it's, it's really pretty entertaining. Uh, and the thing that I am so excited about, I have never seen Mordor yet. Yes, I am still behind on my, my highest level character is still only in the mid 80s uh, 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 poor Wigan has only just gotten, he's just qualified for the uh, 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 for the Pads of the Dead so that's as far as I've gotten in the game, my, none of my characters have gotten to Mordor so I've seen pictures I've seen, uh, I've seen images uh, but I've never actually explored it yet myself so I uh, just as the first time I saw Minas Tirith was on the chicken run we did to Minas Tirith um, so the first time I will ever see Mordor will be on the chicken run. So if you want to come with me and accompany me as I uh, uh, enter new frontiers and and you know see Ithilien, I'm, I'm gonna. I, I was just talking with Maven before the broadcast and uh, realized that like I'm gonna get to see the the statue of the king at the crossroads, right? Oh man, that's like totally one of the things that I look forward to most about being in Ithilien. So anyway, um, I've. I've I can't wait. So, and and we're gonna we're, we're gonna get to Mordor and Mount Doom, and there are several things I'm gonna be looking around for in Mordor when we get there. So, uh, it's gonna be fun. So, if you don't play Lotro, it, that is totally okay. You can just join in and watch the fun. Join here on our Twitch channel. I'll be broadcasting it on our Twitch channel here that day, Twitch.tv/signumu, uh, and we'll be broadcasting the Chicken Run there. So you can just tune in and watch on your browser uh, the rather peculiar fun of the a throng of chickens and so and again for those of you who don't know this is actually there's like a certain amount of of risk involved here as uh, chickens are not very hardy creatures and uh, pretty much any creature in the landscape is able to kill us in one shot so that's why we need uh, good trustworthy escorts uh, to make sure to keep all the um, uh, to keep all the the the, the mobs off us and and uh, keep the monsters away, not to mention the deer uh, and all of the. I mean, every piece of fauna will come launching after us. Um, anyway, it's going to be um, it's going to be really fun. I mentioned the deer Tarlonio in particular because the one time I've ever been in Ithilien before, I got taken. Wigan was taken to to uh, Hennethanun. Um, he just got got zapped there. Uh, so that I could see Hennethe Noon, because I really wanted to see Hennethe Noon. But I'm like, I was like 20 levels, you know, too low uh, for that area. And I was like, I, I went down the tunnel into Hennethe Noon, and a doe came pelting across the landscape and down the tunnel chasing me to try to assassinate me. Uh, like the deer of Athelion were, uh, like, took completely after me. Um... So uh, anyway, that that that's why I mentioned the deer because I was scarred by that experience. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's all good. Um, so uh, yeah, Hologro, who is here tonight, uh, has volunteered. He, you know, he is uh, going to be our uh, our our capable leader. He is a a a, a an, an experienced chicken leader. Uh, you know, he's gonna gonna be joining us uh, in his persona as Uncle Rooster uh, to guide uh, the young fledgling chickens uh, across Middle Earth. So I'm really appreciative of that. So yes, Tamara, that will be on Landreval. Um, on Landreval uh, on the 17th of Feb Saturday, the 17th of February, starting at 11 a.m. So that's again and again here on uh, on Twitch. 
TV slash Signaview. We'll be uh, um, we'll be we'll be broadcasting it. So I hope that you guys will be able to join me for that. That'll be a really fun uh, a really fun day that I've been looking forward to for a while. So um, okay, um, let's. Um, Let's get back to the book. We have more of Bree to be introduced to and several other things that I want to talk about first um, because lots of questions came up last time and I want to uh, address some of them. But last week was heavy, right? I mean, we were just doing like the first few paragraphs of chapter nine, the general introduction to Bree, and so many big issues came up. You guys were uh, all over the really heavy questions. Um, you know, one thing I've been reflecting on ever since then, I was like, you know, one of the really cool things about you know one of the many cool things about going through the Lord of the Rings is uh, as as casual as, I was going to say casually it's not quite the right word leisurely in as leisurely a fashion as we are is that there's pretty much no issue we're not going to end up having talked about over the course of this um, and uh, and this is uh, uh, you know this is now our forty seventh class session and uh, we're what? Uh, I don't even know. We're in chapter nine, right? Uh, so um, it was funny. We just, uh, I just released the 400th episode on my podcast uh, this past week. Uh, I, I, I guess I didn't even, I'd forgotten. I didn't even notice. And, uh, you know, one of my people was pointing out, hey, 400 episodes, which was really fun. Um, and I'm like 47 exploring the Lord of the Rings. I'm going to be, I don't even know what. Uh, I, I, I wonder what percentage of my entire podcast for the last, you know, 15 years by that time uh, uh, will be exploring the Lord of the Rings by the time we get there. Um, anyway, um, uh, yeah. Oh, so Matt, Dane should find out about chickens in Lotro because it's really fun. Yeah, there's a there's this farm in Mickle Delving that you go to and you get a series of chicken quests in order to qualify for roaming the, the wider world as a chicken. Uh, it's... Uh, um, it's a, it's a big deal. Anyway. Okay. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna move forward now. Um, let's, uh, oh yeah. So issues. Okay. So issue number one, um, this is, uh, I, I, I wanted to touch on this. We talked about this. I know we hit, a, I, I got this by email recently from, uh, from a listener, Hugo, uh, in Quebec and, it, so I was I was thinking back, and of course, as some of you know, I can never remember what I talked about even last week, much less a couple months ago. And so I couldn't remember when I when I was reading Hugo's email. I'm like, I know this came up when we were talking about Tom Bombadil's verse at the beginning, but I couldn't remember if we actually did a comparison. So I'm like, you know what? It's worth doing. So anyway, so what Hugo was asking about was he he talked about the language of Tom Bombadil and how nonsensical it sounded to the hobbits. And do I think that a parallel can be made with the language of the tralalalali elves of of the Hobbit. As as I said, I know this came up, but as I said, I couldn't remember doing a comparison. So I wanted to do a quick comparison um, because my quick answer is yes, I do think there are some similarities. It's not exactly the same, but I do think that there are some... uh, So superficially, they're different. Fundamentally, I think they're very similar, right? So just quick comparison uh, of the two. Here is uh, one of the verses of the the first one in chapter three of The Hobbit. Oh, what are you seeking and where are you making? The faggots are reeking, the bannocks are baking. Oh, trillalalali, the valley is jolly. Ha ha. Okay, now, first, the what is the function of the nonsense words? Uh, there are actually fairly few, 
right? Nonsense words. The only nonsense words that there are are trillalalali and haha, right? And it seems fairly clear that uh, the nonsense words there are primarily like rhythmic and onomatopoetic, right? That is like the haha, that's just laughter, right? It's a representation of laughter. Um, so like you're supposed to laugh at the end of that stanza, right? There were, the elves did laugh at the end of that stanza. Um, uh, they say the valley is jolly, right? They say it and then they do it, right? You know, they're, they they say the valley is jolly and, and, and they laugh, right? Because it is. Um, the trillalalali is mostly about sound and rhythm, right? Oh, trillalalali, the valley is jolly. Um, it's, 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 it's designed for rhythm in order to maintain the, not only the rhythm of that one line, but to, uh, to fit with the next one, right? Oh, tr- oh, tra here down in the valley, right? Uh, in many of the verses, oh, tra the valley is jolly, uh, in this one, right? Um, so again, not very many nonsense word, most of the, very little of the substance, uh, of the verse are nonsense. Again, it's just rhythmically, um, and in this kind of laughing mode. Right, Tom Bombadil's verse. This is Tom Bombadil's first big song. Right when uh, he meets Frodo and Sam, "Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, my darling. Light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling down along under hill, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There, my pretty lady is, river woman's daughter, slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water." Old Tom Bombadil, water lilies bringing, comes hopping home again. Can you hear him singing? Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, and merry o, goldberry, goldberry, merry yellow berry o. You will remember this. We spent a good deal of time talking about this verse before. Now, again, how is how are nonsense words used in Tom Bombadil's verse? Right. Primarily, of course, it's all the Mary Doll, Dairy Doll stuff that we get is really the only nonsense word content of this poem, right? We get it in the first line, and we get it in those last lines again. Hey, come, Mary Doll, Dairy Doll, my darling. And then, so that's, we get this sort of like introductory piece of nonsense. Notice it's different from the elves, right? So as they say, superficially, the use of nonsense words is quite different. This is not just, I mean, okay, is it for rhythm? Yeah, of course this is for rhythm, but, um, but it's an entire... It's an entire line, and I would also add, it it seems to it seems to convey more. If you see what I mean, oh trillalalali, there is no real sense that there's any substance there, right? That line is just a setup for the valley is jolly, right? Again, it's it's meant to be rhythmic. It's meant to be um, fun and rhythmic. Um, hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, my darling. Right, the my darling at the the hey at the beginning, the hey come at the beginning, and the my darling at the end. You know, as as we kind of talked about when we were looking at it, it's one of those lines which sort of almost sounds like it means something, right? But you can't quite make out what it is. Like Mary doll, dairy doll, my darling. Like who exactly? We and we kind of debated who is he singing to, right? Who is the who is he addressing in the song? Is he singing to Goldberry? Is he singing to the Hobbits? You know, what what what, what exactly? It's 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 unclear, right? But there is that sense that it's unclear, but it means something, right? We just don't really quite know what it is. Um, and then, of course, he uh, then you know shifts into non-nonsense language, right? Um, and then at the end again, 
right after he says, can you hear him singing? He goes back into nonsense, right? But again, notice once again, the nonsense language is intermingled with enough, like it's sufficiently connected to sensible words, right? Understandable words that it gives you a sense of meaning, right? Some kind of meaning. Um, hey, come merry doll, dairy doll, and merry-o, goldberry, goldberry, merry yellow berry-o. That last line in particular, right? Merry yellow berry-o. There's actually, apart from the O at the end, there are zero nonsense words in that entire line, right? The ef- entire effect is like slightly nonsensical, right? In that same spirit, like merry doll, dairy doll, merry-o. Um, I'm not saying it's sensible, right? But again, there's it's it's kind of the jumbling together of words in a way that, as I say, is quite different from the way that the elves do it, uh, and it seems to have a different kind of effect, right? So that's what I mean when I say when we compare when we look at the two verses uh, closely, the f- superficially they're quite different, right? The way that the elves use use nonsense language and the way that Tom Bombadil uses nonsense language are, are different. Um, however. When I, when you like look at what they're actually doing, when you actually read the verses and, and, and think about what they're saying, actually they're pretty similar, in fact, right? What are the elves doing, right? Oh, what are you seeking and where are you making? The faggots are reeking, the bannocks are baking. Oh, trillalalali, the valley is jolly. And, you know, as I've talked about in my Hobbit book, for instance, um, those lines, we start with the questions, right? What are you seeking and where are you making? And then it digresses to statements of fact, right? Observing stuff that's happening around them. Hey, look, you know, smoke is coming from the fire over there. Like there's, there are logs over there. They are burning and smoke is coming out of them as we speak, right? And, 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 and by golly, would you, there are bannocks and they are baking by that same fire, right? Can you even believe it? And the valley is jolly. Also a statement of fact, right? Uh, it's not a... It's not a. It's not an argument, right? It's not. A, uh, it's not a command. It's just. This is. This is. This is the fact, right? This is a jolly valley, um, as of course the fun nonsense word the line before uh, emphasizes. Um, so that you know, as I've said before, that that's sort of one of the major trends is simply perceiving what's going on in the world around them and taking delight in even the simplest things. You know, uh, how even the flowing of the river is something that causes delighted laughter on the part of the elves, despite, of course, the fact that they've seen it uh, hundreds of thousands of times before. And when we look at Tom Bombadil's verse, um, there is a similar kind of effect, right? Light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling, down along under hill, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There my pretty lady is, river woman's daughter, slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water. It begins with the observation about the weather wind and the feathered starling, which we talked about quite a bit, but again, at superficially at least, that's the same kind of thing that the elves are doing, right? Hey, look, the wind is blowing, the feathered starling is flying... And then he makes observations about Goldberry, right? Um, and just taking the same, you know, so again, it's, it's, his focus is a little more uh, narrow, right? He's taking delight, especially in Goldberry. He paints this picture of where Goldberry is right now. She is under hill, 
shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There my pretty waiter is, river woman's daughter, slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water. He's singing about Goldberry, where she is, what she's doing, and how beautiful she is. These are also things which Tom Bombadil has doubtless observed and sung about uh, uh, more than hundreds of thousands of times before, right? And yet, as we saw, and it's absolutely adorable, Tom Bombadil takes this fresh delight in that all the time, and, and especially in the context of Tom uh, Water Lilies bringing comes hopping home again, right? Uh, the way in which he's sort of recapitulating their wedding, right? Their marriage by bringing home the water lilies uh, to uh, uh, to Goldberry. Once again, again, sort of more focused, right, than the elves, uh, uh, more, more, uh, more connubial than the elves. But yet again, there's, I, I see anyway, a deep kind of similarity there, right? That, that same, I'm taking a, a fresh delight in something which is very familiar, um, uh, very intimately familiar to Tom Bombadil, right? But like the 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 beauty and splendor of his wife inspires uh, this this uh, delighted song, just as presumably it did, uh, however many thousands of years ago they were actually married. Um, so I do so. We can see some some real similarity, I think, between Tom Bombadil and the elves in their perspective and how they see the world. And I think that the, cor- the, 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 the correlation of the fact that both of them use nonsense words um, is not, I think that's not a coincidence, right? I think that there is a kind of unrestrained merriment. There is a kind of unrestrained jollity, uh, to use the two kind of key words in those two, uh, uh, in those two stanzas, right? Jolly for the elves, merry for uh, Tom. Um, I... Both of them have that kind of unrestrained merriment and jollity, and that's one of the things that primarily marks them. Um, and I, I think that that's, uh, I think it's important. I think, I think uh, that that's a big deal. Uh, so anyway, so Hugo, thanks for bringing that up again. As I said, I couldn't remember if I did a side-by-side comparison. If I did, you guys are patient enough to uh, uh, suffer through it again. Uh, if I didn't, well, there we are. Um, uh, all right. Number two, Lincoln. This is the uh, that Lincoln posted on this. We had just started talking, but this is the thing that I was like, we, "There's no way we have time to really talk about this at the end of class last time." We had just we finished last class with the paragraph about how uh, there's nowhere else in the. Uh, uh, in the world where this peculiar uh, but excellent arrangement of big people and little people living together in Brie um, can be found, right? Um, yeah, I know Kyle. Kyle's Kyle's like, wow, somebody uh, somebody got me to talk more about poems. Yeah, I, they totally twisted my arm. I mean, you know, Hugo was super persuasive in his email to coax me into taking time out to talk more about poetry. Um, Anyway, so here is Lincoln's observation that uh, we didn't get time to really talk about last time. Uh, He says, about a year ago, I was thinking about Brie, and it occurred to me that this is actually the most cosmopolitan society we see in all of Tolkien's Middle-earth. Everywhere else is decidedly monoracial, bar some very special exceptional cases, such as a human-like Turin or Tour living among the elves. 
The most wise and enlightened settlements in the Legendarium are friendly to outsiders and welcome guests from other species and cultures, thinking specifically of Elrond's hospitality in Rivendell, and may even have friendly trading relationships with them as between the Lonely Mountain of the Dwarves and the Human Kingdom of Dale. But there are no truly multicultural kingdoms or societies documented in the entire breadth of Middle-earth history. Despite the established compatibility between elves and humans, there are only two or three mixed marriages between the two races in all that time. The narrator specifically informs us that the multiracial arrangement of the Brie Folk is not to be found anywhere else in the world, and even there, the narrator also informs us that despite living in the same community, hobbits and humans mind their own affairs in their own ways. I presume this means their interactions mostly involve public matters, and their private lives rarely, if ever, intersect. Even more baffling to me is the narrator's characterization of the Brie Folk's relatively cosmopolitan living circumstances as peculiar. In Middle-earth, the hobbits and the humans of Brie are apparently the weirdos for living in the same community together. Um, several, thing, um, several things I would want to uh, uh, say in response to this, Lincoln. Um, I agree with your observation with a proviso actually. Um, but it's a pretty significant one. At the end of the day, I actually disagree. Um, but I'll get back to that. Okay. Let me start actually with the, with the, with the final and simplest point. Peculiar in this circumstance really only means unusual, right? Uh, peculiar just, it's like, it's, it's peculiar meaning like that's the same thing as saying you don't find it anywhere else, right? It's, it's, uh, peculiar is like a step shy of unique, Right, it just means very unusual. So um, he's not. It's not a value judgment by calling it peculiar. Right, it's just we tend to use the word peculiar in a more kind of value judgment sort. Of. I mean, if you call somebody peculiar, if somebody calls you peculiar, right, it, it, it usually means they think you're weird, right, um, and possibly not in a good way. Uh, that's. I, there's not, I don't see that kind of value judgment in Tolkien's usage of the word peculiar here. Especially, of course, um, Lincoln, as you go on to point out, um, I didn't I didn't quote your entire post. Um, as, as you go to point out, there's, you know, he immediately calls it peculiar but excellent, right? So obviously the narrator in calling it peculiar is not intending a negative judgment on it, right, by using it. And that's one of the primary reasons why I'm pretty confident that it's that he is there using the word peculiar in its older and in that sense kind of more neutral and descriptive uh, sense. Now, let's step back a second. Well, hang on, Lincoln, I'm getting there. Uh, I just wanted to start, as I said, with the simplest thing first. I'm going to... So... Two things here. One of the thing, one of the ways in which this often comes up is in contrast to our primary world, right? In which, uh, and I would also add, not only con- in contrasting to our primary world in which we do see um, sort of ethnically diverse communities quite often, right? Um, but also. I, 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 to me, I think more importantly, that is one of the reasons why this is a significant issue for some people, uh, is that diversity, ethnic diversity, is something that we in the modern world really value, like as an intrinsically good thing in itself. If a, if a community is diverse, if you call a community diverse, you're praising it, generally, in the modern world. Um, 
And so therefore, it comes into question, right? Since the since Tolkien's community, so most of Tolkien's communities are not ethnically diverse. Is that a bad thing, right? Is that a criticism? Why is it that there is so little diversity of that kind uh, in Tolkien's communities? Um, now, here is something that I would... Here's where, Lincoln, I want to make my proviso, which I think is is really an important one at the end of the day. Um there is one major huge reason why it is un eh, what do I want to say? Unfair? Unjust? Inappropriate? Mm, I'm not quite sure the exactly correct adjective here. Um, but why it doesn't really work anyway to compare the diversity of Tolkien societies with, the, with our diversity in our world. Um, there's a one huge, enormous factor that we have to take into account. And that is, in terms of Tolkien's world, right? Um, the kind of, notice, Lincoln, the kind of diversity that you're saying does not exist in most of Tolkien's world, right? And the kind of diversity which does exist in Bree, right? With two different peoples, hobbits and men, living in the same community, and how rarely that kind of diversity happens elsewhere, right? Um, if that is your standard for diversity, if a, if a community is considered diverse, if more than one of these kinds of peoples, humans, hobbits, elves, and dwarves, live together, you know, in, in more or less harmony, or well, harmoniously or not, it would still be diverse, right? Um, if that's your standard for diversity, then there is no diversity anywhere on planet Earth. Our primary world is utterly void of diversity, right? Because everywhere in our entire world, every single one of our communities is full of just humans, right? Nothing but humans everywhere you look, right? Now, that may, it may sound like I'm kind of making a joke about that, but I'm not making a joke about that. I think this is hugely important, right? Remember, uh, I, I want to I appeal to a piece of vocabulary we used before drawn from C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Um, uh, uh, now, right? Um, H-N-A-U, right? Now meaning a rational species, right? A rational animal. Um, and one of the things that, uh, of course, is one of the premises of the first of Lewis's space trilogy is when when uh, Ransom visits Malacandra, visits Mars, Mars has three different species of now. Uh, there are three different rational species that cohabit on the same planet. And one of the things that they say in conversation with Ransom is, wow, how weird it must be, to, you know, for you, it must really stunt you in some ways that you have a, a planet with only one species of now, right? Humans, right? Um, Tolkien also, one of the fundamental elements of Tolkien's sub-creation, right, is that he is imagining a world in which there are multiple different kinds of now, especially, of course, right, primarily the two uh, elves and men are always the sort of the two, you know, the, yes, there are dwarves, yes, there are orcs, yes, there are hobbits, who are kind of a subset of man, it seems. But anyway, I mean, the, they totally count as different people, but but sort of the fundamental paradigm, right, that in many ways, the kind of essence of Tolkien's stories from the very beginning has been exploring 
what does a world with elves look like, right? With elves and men, two fundamentally different kindreds who are independent and have totally, have different fates and destinies and natures and, and therefore completely different outlooks on the world. And how, how does the world, you know, what does the world look like under those circumstances? Okay. So, therefore, um, one of the things that you'll notice, if you make a distinction between that kind of diversity, right? If you insist that diversity must mean different species of now living together in one community, dwarves and elves living together, right? Humans and, and hobbits living together. If you insist on that kind of diversity, it is true. There's almost none in Tolkien's world, right? But that's not fair, right? Because again, that's not what we call diversity in our world, right? What we call diversity in our world is different, like, ethnicities within our own race, right? We're all the same race, anyway. We're all humans, right? Um, so we have different ethnicities within our, you know, with people with different, like, nation, you know, national backgrounds and, and, and different cultural backgrounds, right? All coming, and we call that diversity, right? Well, if we call that diversity, there actually is quite a substantial amount of diversity in Tolkien's world, right? Gondolin is an extremely diverse place. There's Noldor and Sindar living together, right? Gondolin is a melting pot of Noldor and Sindar, right? There we go. Doriath is a melting pot of Nandor and Sindar, right? You know, elves from Assyrian coming there. Cyrus, who gets bashed in the face by the cup from Turin, is Nandor, right? It's not a pure Sindar civilization, right? Um, and we even know that some of the Noldor, of course, like Galadriel, also come and live there, and she's not unique. Um, we have Tony, absolutely. Rivendell is an absolutely a melting pot of elves. Gondor was a melting pot of humans, right? You had the Numenorians, you had the natives of different, you know, of different tribes, the mountain people, and you had the people from down in Lebanon, right? Who are clearly, from their physical descriptions, of different, what we would call different ethnicities, right? Um, that in, in the north, right? Who are the Bardings? Who are the Bjornings? Who are the Woodmen? Where do they come from? And there were lots of different... Think of the history of Rovanian and all the... Everything that happened. There's, there's, there's a bunch of different peoples who have come together to form the people of... And certainly the Bardings have... You know, uh, as their ancestors, lots of different and Milthaliel hobbits too. Absolutely, we have the three different ethnicities of hobbits, right? All now kind of intermingled and people with like mixed backgrounds and everything else like that, right? Um, so there's, you know, I think that sometimes the cry against diversity, like saying that Tolkien's uh, uh, civilizations are not diverse. On the one hand, I'll come back to this. I get that, and and I, it's definitely true in a sense. But I, I I sometimes feel like the standard is like unfairly high, right? It is true that Tolkien describes the peoples—elves, dwarves, humans, and hobbits—tending to stick to themselves, right? Tending to live only on their own. Um, is would that happen in our world, right? Are we different from that? Is that different from us? I'm not convinced that's different from us, right? If there were elves in our world, would we be like, you know, you know, would they be living down the hall from your, you know, from your apartment in Manhattan? I don't know if they would, you know, they might not, right? Um, but anyway, so, but now Lincoln, I would say it is perfectly fair to say that Tolkien does imagine like 
that you know this kind of this tendency towards isolationism, right? This tendency for the peoples to keep to themselves uh, and live separately, even if they have, like you mentioned, Dale and the Lonely Mountain, right? They don't intermingle exactly, right? And as you point out, of course, even in Bree, they keep they mind their own affairs, right? Um, that's true. That's true. So that that seems to be one of the things that Tolkien imagines when he is thinking about how the different peoples relate to each other in this kind of thought experiment that he has of what would a world with multiple different, radically different kinds of now with totally different uh, uh, racial background. Really, I mean race, right? When we talk about race in a human context, um, you know, like when my... I I sometimes think about this, actually, uh, from a Tolkien studies perspective, right? When people talk about um, racial issues in literature. I mean, everybody talks about race issues, right? And I'm like, you, you, you don't know from race issues, right? Come on, please. Like, you're just talking about two different ethnicities or cultural backgrounds among humans. That's nothing compared to thinking about the racial issues when you're dealing with elves and, and, and humans, right? That is to say, the imaginative situation is completely different, right? Um, and very, uh, in, in, in that sense, very much more extreme. So, uh, even to say now, I, do I think that Tolkien differs in values from us in the modern world? Yes, I don't think that Tolkien would consider diversity a compliment by itself. Right? That you know, to say this this society is diverse and to mean that as a compliment is something that I think Tolkien might have found slightly puzzling. Right? Um, so I mean, yeah, I, I I do think that there is a difference there. Um, but um, but anyway, so so. And that's kind of that's kind of my answer. To this. So why is it that they keep to themselves? Um, you know, I don't. Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, as as Matt says, weirdness is 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 important, right? Um, see, because Lincoln, I can't find it weird. Actually, I really can't. Um, I guess I would I would I would say it this way. If Tolkien, Tolkien imaginatively asks himself the question, if there were several different species, radically different, right? Different in the way, not different in the way that, you know, people of different cultural backgrounds or ethnic backgrounds uh, among humans are different, right? But different in the way that elves and humans are different, different in the way that dwarves and hobbits are different, right? How would they interact culturally? And his answer to that question is they would tend to keep to themselves, right? They wouldn't tend to just, like, hang out in the same place and live and build cities together and live... That would be very unusual for them to do that. Um, And, uh, see, but Lincoln, I think that you're not really exercising enough imagination there. If you don't find elves and humans different, I think that you're taking too much for granted. That is, I think that you're thinking of the elves as too human. They're not. It's one of the things that I think is really fun to see. It makes... A species which is immortal, right, is fundamental. Think of just a few glimpses that we get of this, right? Remember Hurin and Huor and Gondolin, right? And their perspective on, like, look, we're going to get old, right? Please let us go so that we can participate in the events. You can hang out for a millennium and then do something, right? We can't do that. It's one little small, tiny example, right? 
Um, and there, but there are many, right? There are many examples of inviting us, ways that Tolkien invites us uh, to, to understand the whole movement of the minds of, of elves and men, the whole priorities, the way they look at the world, the way they interact with the world. Even the Tralalalali poem we were just looking at, fundamentally different from the way that people look at the world, right? Um, exactly. Rick, I was just thinking of the same thing, the film film discussion about the nature of death among elves, and just thinking about what once you sort of open up to that, once you start really imagining, okay, let me try to put myself into an elvish viewpoint, and it was one of the issues we were having in, in film film as we were imagining how would we depict the reaction of the Teleri when their kin are being slaughtered, uh, you know, or not when they're being slaughtered, but having been slaughtered, right? So you've got a Teleri standing next to the corpse of his loved one, right? How does he react? It's easy to say, well, obviously he would like weep and wail and tear his clothes, right? Or you know, like, some kind of, some kind of uh, expression of grief. But would he, right? They wouldn't react. This. We can't just project onto them human reactions, right? Because the human reaction to death and to the death of a loved one is premised upon the mortal situation. If you're an immortal, right? Especially if you live in Valinor, and Mandos is up the road. Right, the halls of Mandos are up the road. How would you look at it? Again, I'm not saying there's no grief. I'm not saying they wouldn't care, right? But they wouldn't respond exactly the same way, right? And so, and again, and that's just so that that's a really deep, a really fundamental um, difference, right? So anyway, and there, there there are a bunch of places I think where Tolkien kind of invites us, though he's fairly gentle about inviting us uh, to think about these things. We're not shocked by these differences very often, especially in The Lord of the Rings, which sticks to the mortal perspective most of the time because it's told from the framework of hobbitry, right? Um, And so we get it mostly from the the mortal standpoint. But, you know, I got to think that, you know, when when humans came to live among the elves, uh, which, remember, does happen, right? There's another multicultural society, Dorloman, right? Uh, in uh, the Silmarillion. When elves come, when humans come to live among the elves in the Silmarillion, it's weird. And they quickly find that it's weird, right? They bring them in, they're like, hey, this is great. And then they start dying of old age. And the elves are like, whoa, what the heck? <laughs> right? They don't, it's hard for them to even get. You know, they're all kind of like, you know, the corpse of Beor becomes like a tourist exhibit, right? As elves are like, whoa, look at that. He just die just like drop dead right just wound out how about that that's weird right they don't get it um and and as we can see from the gondolin moment that i mentioned before there's a fundamental like lack of comprehension of how morals look at things anyway so there are lots of uh there are lots of moments like that which to me make it very explicable so I'm, i find it very easy to accept the answer uh, that Tolkien basically gives, which is if there were these different species, they'd probably pretty much keep to themselves. And the ones who do it well, like the good, you can tell the good people because they mind their own affairs, right? That's why Bree is a good example because you've got the hobbits and you've got the men and they pretty much, they let each other do their own thing, right? Um, and it's easy to see how this would not be the case. Right. If you have, if things are not going well, right. If you've got two questionably questionable kind of races here, right, um, or one of them is you know corrupt or whatever, there's going to be 
there's going to be struggle, right? Because they don't look at the world the same way and they're going to be intolerant of the way that the other... So to tolerate, at least, to understand, at best to seek to understand, uh, at be- you know, uh, ideally, the way that the other race looks at the world uh, in this fundamental way, um, that's, um, that's a big deal, right? Hang on, sorry. I just realized my phone seems to be not plugged in here, so I'm, I'm about to lose juice here. Um, anyway, so that is my kind of answer about how, um, uh, why I think the question of non-diversity is actually sort of exaggerated, um, in that sense. Because again, I, I do think there's not really a major shortage of diversity in our terms, right? That is different cultures coming together. We see lots of different cultures coming together. Um, almost everywhere you look, you can see examples of that. Again, I'm not trying to pretend that diversity is a value in Tolkien's world in the same way that we in the Western world hold um, diversity to be a value. Um, but uh, but definitely, it's... Um, uh, it's um, we do see it. I mean, we do see it. It is certainly a fact of life in most of the places that we see. Period. Most of the places that we see. Um, remember, even in Rohan, right? Uh, remember, there's Dunlending blood in people of the Westfold, right? I mean, there's 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 diversity there too. Why do you why do you think gambling knows the language of the Dunlendings, right? Um. Anyway, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And Lincoln, I know you're not talking about it as a value exactly, but I, I um, well, you're not talking about it in this part. You did go on to kind of talk to raise that issue, essentially thinking about the question of diversity or uh, separatism, you know, racial separatism and stuff. Um, So, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. Oh, also, this is another reason why the relationship between Eregian and Khazad-dum was such a big deal, right? Because there's another example. Now, they didn't live together, right? So it wasn't exactly a community. Um, But the closeness of the friendship, uh, the fact that they were really close friends and worked together really, really well and really closely was a, enough of a big deal to be really noteworthy, right? To be, to be considered an exception. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, so, uh, but so let's move on. I, but that's, that's what I was. That's what I kind of wanted to talk about last time. But I knew it was way too late for me to, for me to start talking about that. All right. Um, I'm also tempted to come back to the women traveling rangers issue that was such a controversy last time. But I'll save that. I'll save that for another time because uh, I want to get to the text. So let's look at the foreign policy of Bree. All right. The Bree folk, big and little, did not themselves travel much, and the affairs of the four villages were their chief concern. Occasionally, the hobbits of Bree went as far as Buckland, or the East Farthing. But though, the, but though their land was not much further than a day's riding east of the Brandywine Bridge, the hobbits of the Shire now seldom visited it. An occasional Bucklander or adventurous took would come out to the inn for a night or two, 
but even that was becoming less and less usual. The Shire hobbits referred to those of Bree, or, and to any others that lived beyond the borders, as outsiders, and took very little interest in them, considering them dull and uncouth. There were probably many more outsiders scattered about in the west of the world in those days than the people of the Shire imagined. Some, doubtless, were no better than tramps, ready to dig a hole in any bank and stay only as long as it suited them. But in the Breeland, at any rate, the hobbits were decent and prosperous, and no more rustic than most of their distant relatives inside. It was not yet forgotten that there had been a time when there was much coming and going between the Shire and Bree. There was Bree blood in the brandy bucks, at any, uh, by all accounts. Okay. All right. Um, so, unsurprisingly, we have the people of Bree not traveling much, right? Um, uh, this has been a common thread all the way through, right? We've seen that nobody travels much, right? Uh, the people, uh, you know, Sam has never been more than 20 miles away from his home. Um, uh, Farmer Maggot considers the people in Hobbiton, the figures the people in Hobbiton must be strange, right? Uh, and none of them have ever been to Bree, uh, and uh, the Breelanders consider the hub, and it's like, what, a day's march? It's not that far away. Um, and yet, it's more than 20 miles, right? So uh, most of the Breelanders have never been out there. Um, and uh, um, yeah, at, at, at Seth Wilson was just saying that same thing, that the, the, the way that the Breelanders look at the Shire, it sounds very much like what we already saw between the East Farthing uh, and Hobbiton. Um, yeah. Um, and Galandar, exactly as you say, this is not unusual in pre-modern society. I mean, the ease of transport, um, f you know, over very long distances, um, whether it be, I mean, it's like there are, you know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people whose daily commutes to work are further than most people would have uh, ever traveled in their lives in a pre-industrial society. Um, and that's... Um, uh, that is... Okay, that's normal. I mean, that's not at all sort of shocking. Um, and Gilgonthir, you're absolutely right. Um safety as well as ease of transport. Yes. Brigands on the road uh, were a big issue for a long time, absolutely. Right? I mean, this is still an issue in, like, 18th century England, right? I mean, you can't read an 18th century novel uh, uh, wherein anyone is traveling anywhere without having the risks of highwaymen, right? That's, that's a, it's a big deal, right? Um, even in uh, that comparatively modern society. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's a really good point. Um, and yes, Tony, it does seem to be that lack of travel and contact that engenders the xenophobia and mistrust, right? Farmer Maggot and Ham Gamgee both assume that the other is fairly strange, even though they're probably not really that different, right? And we can see that there's very little difference. In fact, remember the narrator told us that the Bucklanders, who are considered decidedly queer uh, by most of the rest of the hobbits in the Shire, he actually, he says, like, they, they weren't really very different, right? And here, of course, we're told that most of the Bree hobbits are not really very different uh, from the hobbits of the Shire. Um, so, um, yeah... Um, 
Yeah. Um, yeah, Rick, it does seem that people are afraid of the rangers, mostly because they don't, I mean, they don't, they're strange wayfarers, right? Um, uh, traveling, you know, alone or in small groups, it, there's every likelihood that they would be brigands or highwaymen, right? Um, uh, that would be a very natural fear, I would think. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and Tony, you're absolutely right. These are all landlocked cultures, and so it is true that um, seafaring cultures will tend to travel a great deal more. Uh, that is that is normal. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Rin Roos, I do agree with you that with the danger of travel, that's another thing that, that would tend to um, increase xenophobia, right? Um, anyone strange, anyone different, anyone you don't know, right, could be, could be, could be a hazard, could be a danger. Um, yeah. Now, but Scudo, you are right. It's not to say that there's no migration, right? Sam himself grew up in Hobbiton and might not have left, but it's not to say that nobody ever leaves ever, right? Um, it's very clear that, I mean, at Sam's own family, some of them, like his uncle, at least, and I think his brothers, too, are in the North Farthing, right? So um, uh, it actually seems to be, uh, you know, it's not uncommon for, uh, you know, somebody to go out and, you know, seek his fortune elsewhere in the Shire like that. Um, but th- that doesn't mean they travel a whole lot, right? He probably, uh, 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 yeah, yeah. Um and yes, Matt, the danger of the travel between the Shire and Bree makes that an even bigger obstacle, of course, than the travel between the rest of the Shire and Buckland. Yes. Um, and absolutely, Tony, this is what made it a big deal when the old bucks relocated across the river. And it's also, of course, what made it an even bigger deal uh, when the original settlers of the Shire moved out from Bree and and colonized the Shire, right? Um, and, you know, set up there. Uh, those were really, really big steps. Um, really big steps off into the unknown. Um, and so we see that's that's not unheard of, right? There are, there are several important uh, uh, examples of that. Um, but it's unusual. Um uh, okay, let's see. Um, yes, Mad Violinist, there is still some trade. Uh, we do know that they do get Shire pipeweed, right? We're not going to get a reference to that here, um, but you will... Uh, Mad Violinist, I assume you're remembering about how um, Barlaman Butterbur says that He's all for Brie in most matters, right? He doesn't think that the 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 pipe weed they grow there in Brie is the match of South Farthing, right? So he's obviously smoked South Farthing and he imports it regularly, um, uh, and normally would have it, but doesn't because of the troubles in the Shire, right? Um, but even saying I'm all for Brie in most matters is really interesting, right? You know, that's like so. So there's apparently a regular competition between. Uh, things that are made or grown in Brie and things that are imported from elsewhere, 
right? I mean, there's foreign markets and there's the domestic markets there in Bree, or else he wouldn't even be saying that. Um, so there is clearly trade. Uh, and the Shire is one, but I think not all, uh, of the, uh, the, the sort of the trade routes into Bree. Um, the dwarves, I suspect, of coming in and selling things in Bree as well. Uh, yeah, exactly, Mad Violinist. We'll talk about this more uh, a few years down the road. Um, yeah, very good. Um, yeah, and Ambrosius Aurelianus, you're absolutely right. I keep referring to Sam because he is the least traveled of all of them, right? Um, Mary and Pippin and Frodo have all been much further, right? Frodo grew up in Buckland, right? And then relocated to Hobbiton. So, you know, we, we, we see a fair bit of movement around the Shire, um, both movement in the terms, in terms of travel, right? Pippin is familiar, right? Is recognized uh, uh, by Farmer Maggot when he sees him, right? After not having seen him for many years. Um, so, you know, there are, you know, the, the more well-to-do Hobbits who don't have to work, right? They, um, they have more freedom for travel and seem to take it right now. We know that the, you know, the friends of Frodo who uh, consider going on adventures to be a desirable thing are not necessarily typical of Hobbit culture, but nevertheless, again, there are clearly uh, precedents uh, for this kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yes, Tony, there is news from far away, right? Remember, even the idea that uh, the Dark Tower had been rebuilt in Mordor is a piece of news that Frodo picked up in Bag End, right? He picked that up in Hobbiton um, from uh, travelers going through the Shire, right? Because the East Road goes through there. So um, he would hang out like at the Ivy Bush or the Green Dragon um, and, ca- and, and hear tidings from folks from the outside world um, who are traveling on the road. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, okay, let's see. What else was I just going to talk about? I forget. Um, oh, yeah. Okay, so you can also clearly see the cultural stereotypes that are being quite baldly asserted here, right, by our narrator. Uh, To be a tramp, that is to have no settled home, but just to be kind of wandering around and and be content to just dig a hole in any bank and stay as long as it suits you and then kind of move on, right? Um, That's not respectable. Clearly not respectable, right? Whereas the hobbits in Bree are both are not only prosperous, but decent, right? Um, and those two, f- were, you know, those words or phrases, decent, right, in the second case, and no better than, right, phrase uh, at the beginning shows the, a, a very clear cultural stamp here, right? There's no question that these things are, um, they bear a particular value in the mind of the of the narrator, right? Absolutely. Um, uh and that's totally normal. That's totally normal. Um, uh, remember Gaffer Gamgee talking to Sam about, or talking about talking to Sam about their betters, right? Um, uh, yeah, like different societal levels 
are totally. So I do. I don't think this is the modern narrator. Um, that is, I, I don't think this is the modern narrator in the way that it's obviously the modern narrator when we're talking about express trains. I mean, on the one hand, of course, all of this is mediated to us by the modern narrator. I don't think that those references prove that it's the modern narrator, though I don't think it's um, it, it it fits ill with the modern narrator exactly. Um, I think that, uh, but, but I mean, this seems to me. Very, I mean, think of the Hobbit society is. You know, uh, uh, Lincoln, you were expressing concerns about the, the that those statements being really judgy, right? Well, Hobbit society is very judgy. We see that all over the place, right? Um, you know, there's 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 all kind of judginess going on. Think about the Hobbit, right? You know, the the first and last chapters of the Hobbit, uh, and the whole issue of respectability, right? Very judgy, right? That's. That's the way it is. Yeah, exactly. Eruheb, some of the outsiders might live in nasty wet holes filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, right? I bet they do. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, so Tony, I think that's a really good way to think about it. Tony says, Hobbit culture is definitely centered uh, on the domestic. Um, domesticated land and animals, domesticity in general, hearth and home uh, mean everything. Absolutely. Somebody who just wanders around and has no settled home. Um, it, it's not just about, it's not just about like respectability is obviously not just about money. It correlates with money, right? Um, as the Tooks, of course, show, right? For being undoubtedly wealthier, wealthier than the Baggins, but less respectable, than the baggage. Again, I'm still thinking of chapter one of The Hobbit here, right? So it doesn't absolutely correlate with money. It's not just a... There's no question that the Tooks are higher in social standing than the Bagginses, right? But the Bagginses are more respectable. Um, So, uh, um, anyway, yeah. um, I I, 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 I do think it's pretty clear that it's the the wandering. It's the rootlessness. It's the... um, you know, that not having the, 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 I mean, I, I agree with Tony that I think that that domestic life, that, um, predictability, right. It's clearly a thing that, you know, hobbits value. And so, yeah, absolutely. Like you can be a wanderer. You could be out wandering, you could be traveling, right. Um, but still be, uh, but still not necessarily be a tramp, right? Uh, Tooks on adventures aren't tramps, uh, even if they're wandering, even if they're rootless for quite some time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, see, Lincoln is surprised at the narrator sharing their prejudice. Well, I'm not. I'm really not. First of all, again, don't forget, this is not an alien prejudice, to the, you know, early 20th century British society, right? Um, you know, so that, that I, you know, like the, the way that Gaffer Gamgee uses the phrase, you're betters, totally normal, 
in early 20th century British society um, that someone in the servant class would say that right to another to his offspring in the servant class uh, concerning you know the, the their relationship with the lords of the ma- of the manor right that's totally normal you know it might not be something that uh, you know some modern people are comfortable with but it's totally normal in early 20th century England um, but um, but but it's more than that, Lincoln. I'm not I'm not um, exactly Tony. It's an upstairs downstairs thing. Um, I'm uh, but I'm not surprised in another way. It's not just that I'm not surprised if the modern narrator and the you know Hobbit society would happen to agree on this point. It's not just that I because I don't. I'm not surprised that they would happen to agree on this point. Uh, it's it's also the fact that this passage is interesting, uh, in part because we get sort of more of the narrator here. This is a long piece of narration, and this is a passage I would definitely be interested in looking at. Here's another really interesting paper topic for Mythmoot, by the way. I would love to see somebody doing a really close look at the evolution of the narrator over the course of the film. Of course, it's well known, right, that the tone of the narration changes after chapter one. Um, But it doesn't vanish at the end of chapter one, right? What we get in chapter one, where we're still getting, you know, the Hobbit-style narration, uh, is very different from what we get later on. Um, But the narrator doesn't go away utterly. Um, And yet it changes and the relationship between the narrator and the text changes and the way in which this is clearly a modern narrator commenting sort of sort of on a consciously distant historical moment um, in the express train fashion that seems to me to really decrease um, and I think it would be interesting to look at uh several passages in which the narrator is it seems to be speaking in his own voice uh, and to look at the the way that that happens in that kind of closeness to the text um, I would be interested to compare like passages I would pick would be um, some, the, like the description of the fireworks in chapter one the talking fox or the thinking fox in chapter three um, this passage, the passage describing Frodo's reactions on Karen Emroth would be another one. Um, uh, anyway, you know, I would, uh, I'd be, I'd, I'd, I think that we can see some interesting shifts there, but I really need to, you know, kind of sit down with those passages and dig into them, like as one might do in a Mythmoot paper, uh, to really, uh, to, to think that I could really sort of see that, uh, see that clearly. Um, yeah, yeah. Tony, that's a really good point. Comparing this kind of tour guide mode here and the description of Bree to the tour guide mode description of Buckland that we get. That would be an interesting comparison, too. All right. Let's keep going. Uh, Bree Blood on the Brandybuck by all accounts. Right. Cosmopolitan Society, Brandybuck is. Buckland is. All right. The village of Bree had some hundred stone houses of the big folk, mostly above the road, nestling on the hillside with windows looking west. 
On that side, running in more than half a circle from the hill and back to it, there was a deep dike with a thick hedge on the inner side. Over this, the road crossed by a causeway, but where it pierced the hedge, it was barred by a great gate. There was another gate in the southern corner, where the road ran out of the village. The gates were closed at nightfall, but just inside them were small lodges for the, for the gatekeepers. Down the road, where it swept to the right to go round the foot of the hill, there was a large inn. It had been built long ago, when traffic on the roads had been far greater. For Bree stood at an old meeting of the ways, another ancient road, crossed the east road just outside the dike at the western end of the village. And in former days, men of other folk, and uh, men and other folk of various sorts, had traveled much on it. Strange as news from Bree was still a saying in the east farthing, descending from those days when news from north, south, and east could be heard in the inn, and when the shire hobbits used to go more often to hear it. But the northern lands had long been desolate, and the north road was now seldom used. It was grass-grown, and the Bree folk called it the Greenway. The inn of Bree was still there, however, and the innkeeper was an important person. His house was a meeting place for the idle, talkative, and inquisitive among the inhabitants, large and small, of the four villages, and a resort of rangers and other wanderers, and for such travellers, mostly dwarves, as still journeyed on the east road, to and from the mountains. Okay. Um, all right. Um, I subtitled this slide Open and Closed because I'm really interested in the... Uh, I am tempted to... Um, call it conflicted, but I'm not sure that's quite fair, um, way in which Bree seems to be set up. On the one hand, it is plainly defensible, right? It is, in, in, it, it is a closed city. It doesn't just have gates. It doesn't even just have walls, right? The large hedge that surrounds it. Um, it also has a, it also has a, 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 a dike, right? Um, it's got a, it's got a it's got a moat right there's a the the the, the there's a causeway um, that crosses over the uh, the deep dike with the thick hedge on the inner side right it is a defensible um, uh, it's a defensible city right it's clearly meant to be a stronghold in some sense this is a walled city it doesn't have huge stone walls right it's got a hedge um, but it's got a hedge with a with a with a dike on the outside, right? A dry moat around the outside um, is clearly meant to be defended. Um, and, um, yeah, Fourth Dauntless, I agree. This does not sound like an Arnorian construction, right? This does not sound like a military uh, strategic point in, you know, in the Arnorian Civil Wars, as we talked about, it kind of, like, would have to have been, right? Bree Hill. You've got to think that Bree Hill would have been in some way significant in the Arnorian Civil Wars. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. Uh, those aren't mentioned, right? All that's mentioned are this hedge and the dike here that surround it. But at the same time that it is an enclosed city designed to be defended, it's also open, right? It's also a crossroads. It's, but even that is actually kind of interesting, right? Notice where the crossroads isn't 
in Brie, right? Where is the major intersection? Outside town, right? And that's really kind of interesting to me. Brie is, um, it's not like a town that grew up around the cross. The crossroads is not the important thing. Now, it, 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 it clearly has helped to sustain Brie over time, right? Um, it, you know, travelers coming both north and south on the Greenway and east and west on the East Road. Um, though, again, where they were going to out east was never really, is never really quite clear, right? But anyway, um, it makes sense, of course, that we would see a lot of trade, uh, as we were talking about before. But um, there's... It's not a town that grew up around a crossroads, right? Because if that were the case, the road would be right around... The crossroads would be in the middle of town, right? But the crossroads are not in the middle of town. The crossroads are outside the walls. And yes, Tony, exactly. Um, The focus, uh, city planning-wise, right? The focus is on the hill, not on the crossroads. So it is a city near the very near the crossroads, right? You know, mere like yards away from the crossroads, but it's not built around the crossroads. It's built around the hill. Um, and uh, anyway, I think that that's um, that that's interesting. And Katriana, I kind of wonder. I wonder if the crossroads grew around Brie instead of the other way around, right? The East Road goes right through Brie, um, not the Greenway, right? Not the North-South Road, uh, the Gondor-Arnor Road. Um, Tony, I suspect that the East Road is the older road of the two as well, Um, especially given that the people who clearly primarily made the East-West Road seem to be dwarves, right? Dwarves are, 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 are the number one, still the number one travelers on the East-West Road. Um, the people who would be using the East-West Road would be dwarves and perhaps elves, right? Um, whereas the North-South Road is a Dunedine thing, right? That's an Arnor-Gondor situation that would have come later, certainly after the founding of Brie. Um, so I actually think that's a really interesting insight. Um, uh, who was it who was saying that? Katriana. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting insight that it seems very likely that when the Arnor and Gondor folks were building the North-South Road, right, uh, between Fornost and Point South um, they probably deliberately swung it by Bree, right? Because Bree under Bree Hill was one of the major settlements, and that would be a convenient stopping place along the road. Um, so it seems that, again, it's not that the Prancing Pony grew up at this crossroads. It seems likely, actually, that the, the North-South Road itself may have been laid through that spot, because the Prancing Pony was there, right, in a sense, right, so that people could stay at the inn there. Um, uh, anyway, that's, um, uh, yeah, exactly, Amethorn, right? The Prancing Pony, clear attraction, right, even back in the Arnorian days. Time out of mind, right? That's it. Um, good, good. Okay, so what else do we have here? 
But again, in that context, you can see, right? You can see how that combination of openness, on the one hand, if we kind of, if we, if we pursue that line of thinking, right? If the crossroads postdates the town, which seems likely, which we know to be true, right? As Arnor postdates uh, uh, Bree, right? So we know that the, that the road came first before the crossroads. Um, in that case, you can see how there would be this kind of mixed relationship with the crossroad, right? On the one hand, they would get a lot of their own economic sustenance, right, from travelers and traders uh, on the roads. And so being at the crossroads, very convenient. They would be open to the crossroads and be welcoming travelers at the inn and stuff like that. But um, they're also not, you know, all of them, all of the travelers are still outsiders, right? Um, outsiders who, and the Brewenders have been there, you know, so they've, they've, they, they work with them, but they're not um, necessarily openly uh, welcoming, right? They live in their walled town. Uh, they, you know, there seems to be some kind of element of, you know, trust but verify with, uh, you know, kind of relationship between Bree uh, and the travelers on the roads, you know, between Bree and the crossroads. Um, okay. Um, I'm interested. Here's one thing that I find it easy to kind of uh, pass over, um, and that is... The fact that uh, hobbits once traveled more, right? Hobbits of the Shire used to travel. So uh, was still a saying in the East Farthing, descended from those days when news from north, south, and east could be heard in the inn. That's totally understandable, right? When the kingdoms were still in place and there was more travel of every kind, uh, Bree was buzzing a lot more. But the surprising thing is, and when the Shire Hobbits used to go more often to hear it. So back in those days, back in the days of the kingdom, right, the kingdom of Arnor, maybe before the Civil Wars, maybe during the Civil Wars, right, Hobbits used to come from the Shire to Bree more often, right? That was more normal. Right? And Tony, it makes me wonder, too, when the travel stopped. Is it a safety thing? Right? That is to say, when the roads were maintained by the Arnorian uh, kingdom, right? And presumably also patrolled more often. Um, but, but, you know, were there fewer brigands? Were the roads safer in those days? And so hobbits used to travel more. Um, yeah, Tony was just thinking along similar lines to uh, uh, what I was. Um, uh, that seems possible. Um, yeah, both Lincoln and Matt are remembering that, of course, in those days, the Hobbit sent archers up to fight in the war, right up at Fornost. Um, yeah, exactly. So there's some. There was a. There was a. That seems to be evidence of some kind of increased understand or perception, right? Conception by hobbits of um, being part of the kingdom, being a part of the community, right? That so that maybe in that sense their horizons were bigger. They didn't think of the Shire as an island, right? As as you know, this is the Shire is all that there is. They viewed the Shire as part of a wider kingdom, and so therefore tended to travel more often, which, of course, we see is going to happen again, right? When the hobbits come to view in the Fourth Age, 
the Shire is part of a wider kingdom and connected with the outside world, there does seem to be uh, more travel, right? Um, even, of course, things like uh, Pippin going back to visit Gondor multiple times, right? That's going to be a thing now. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Tony's still trying to figure out when it would have changed. Um I'm not sure if that tra- if the travel is remembered in the sense of within the lifetimes, like the living memories of anybody in the Shire. I don't think we can conclude that. Um, the fact that this saying has stuck around, strange as news from Bree, um, that saying could be hundreds of years old, conceivably, I think. Um, uh, yeah... Yeah. Um Yeah, I mean it's kind of hard to guess. But um Yeah, Mungli, I I am thinking after the fall of Arnor, um you know, maybe even like that, you know, that occasion on which they sent the archers up to the last battles up in Fornost, right when Fornost fell. Maybe after that, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I do think that... Um, it seems likely to have been after then and probably not a whole lot after then. Um, and yeah, Katriana, exactly. Sayings do have a tendency to survive long after anyone remembers what they originally meant. Yes. So, I mean, it could be centuries, um, certainly. Uh, yeah, yeah. And Tony, you're right that we know that travel has become more dangerous just in the last 17 years, right? Well, that's news that Frodo was hearing uh, in Hobbiton. Um, you know, more trolls abroad and, and no longer... Foolish, right? But uh, um, armed with deadly, with uh, terrible weapons and things like that. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, it's getting late. All right, one more. Let's get to the gate. Let's meet Harry Goatleaf. Shall we do that? It was dark and white stars were shining when Frodo and his companions came at last to the Greenway Crossing and drew near the village. They came to the west gate and found it shut, but at the door of the lodge beyond it there was a man sitting. He jumped up and fetched a lantern and looked over the gate at them in surprise. "'What do you want and where do you come from?' he asked gruffly. "'We are making for the inn here,' answered Frodo. "'We are journeying east and cannot go further tonight.' "'Hobbits? Four hobbits? And what's more out of the shire by their talk?' said the gatekeeper, softly as if speaking to himself. He stared at them darkly for a moment, and then slowly opened the gate and let them ride through. "'We don't often see Shire folk riding on the road at night,' he went on, as they halted a moment by his door. "'You'll pardon my wondering what business takes you away east of Bree? What may be your names, might I ask?' Okay. First of all, notice a couple different things here, right? It is very clear that Harry at the gate has heard something about four hobbits coming out of the Shire, right? Um... His reaction changes. His first, what do you want and where do you come from? His first gruff question. 
seems to be not necessarily anything more than how he might normally treat greet strangers who showed up at the gate, right? Which seems to be not so enormously frequent that, you know, he's not a bit taken aback by its happening. Um, but, um, yeah, Tony, that's a really great point. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, the Hobbit's arrival in Bree in the Peter Jackson film uh, is a very compelling visual image uh, that was done really well. I remember that moment. There's so many parts of the fe- the Fellowship of the Ring, especially, that I remember my reaction to seeing them in the theater for the first time. Um, and I remember sitting in the theater in that moment, you know, in the arrival at Bree and thinking it was just so well done. It was really, really neat. The way that they conveyed non-verbally, right, the whole, like, I'm looking around at these huge, tall houses of men, right, and being kind of, kind of, kind of freaked out, and the whole atmosphere provided by the darkness and the rain and their kind of misery and and wanting to get in, indoors, um, works really, really well. But Tony, of course, the the white stars are shining. It's not raining, right? So it is a really important reminder that we need to make sure to uh, free ourselves, right, to be open-minded. And to receive carefully what the text says instead of supplying images from the films. Um, but absolutely, um, Tillian, it is their accents. Yes, it is the way they talk. As soon as he hears them speak, when Frodo says, We are making for the inn here, we are journeying east and cannot go further tonight, he immediately says, Four hobbits from the Shire! That you're from the Shire! How does he know they're from the Shire? By their talk, he knows, right? This is one of the things that, um, this is one of the things that I kind of wish, maybe I would hate it if he had done it, right? But there are a couple moments in which Tolkien tells us that the speech patterns of different people in different areas are different, like noticeably different. As soon as they open their mouth, people are like, whoa, you're not from around here, right? We see it in the Shire in Bree, right? The accents of the Shire hobbits are very noticeable, right? Um, The other instance, of course, is Pippin in Minas Tirith, um, that they, you know, they say their speech sounds strange to each other, fourth thoughtless, just remembering the same thing. Tolkien doesn't represent it, right? I don't know what the difference between the Shire accent and the Bree accent is. Um, we learn about a little bit more in the appendices about what, uh, how Pippin's language is different from the language of Minas Tirith. Um, but I would, I would, I would still, I would like to, uh, uh, part of me wishes that some of that dialectical difference had been actually represented in the text so that we could see it and know it. After all, Sam's dialectical difference is represented, right? Um, he speaks differently from the other hobbits consistently throughout. I would, I, I kind of, it didn't have to be extreme, right? I mean, I'm not asking for, you know, Huckleberry Finn here, but uh, but it would be, you know, I, I some, you know, hint in the text so that we can see the difference in how they talk. I really, uh, uh, I really wish that I could uh, that I could that I could hear it that I could hear it in my head when I'm reading their text um, but um, 
And of course, it is also really interesting. This is, it's funny. And as I was thinking about it before class, I'm like, and gosh, isn't it interesting that they're only like 30 miles away, right? And yet they have this radically different accent that they're like, wow, I can tell you're, you know, you're not from around here. Um, and then I was thinking, of course, yeah, as Harneth is just uh, um, reminding us in England, of course, that's not at all uncommon, right? Somebody who lives in London and somebody who lives in Oxford have quite different accents. Um, you can tell, you know, you can tell the difference between somebody who lives in Northumberland and somebody who lives in, 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 in Glasgow, right? I mean, it's not that far, but you can tell the difference uh, in how they talk. And it's not subtle, right? I mean, you can, it's clear, it's clearly different. You know, it's very clearly different. Um, um, but see, Mungli, that's exactly what I was, as soon as I started thinking that, I'm like, actually, you know what? That's pretty common everywhere, actually. Yes, Brooklyn and New Jersey. Uh, and of course, I'm like, and I live 30 miles away from Boston, and I don't speak very much like most of the people in Boston speak. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, so there's uh, this is, of course, a quite normal phenomenon, which, of course, unsurprisingly, Tolkien was very interested in, uh, and of course would represent, uh, uh, or at least would would think about and would make it a factor in the story, uh, even if he doesn't, in fact, represent it uh, in his, uh, uh, in his, in his language. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So anyway, so his reaction changes his talk to himself, right? What's more out of the Shire by their talk, right? He's talking, he's not talking to Frodo, right? He's talking to himself. Speaking of the hobbits in the third person here, right? Um, he is, uh, his attitude. So we we have a pretty clear indication here that he has been put on his guard to watch for uh, four hobbits and what's more out of the Shire by their toe. So four hobbits from the Shire. Remember uh, the Black Rider who talked to Farmer Maggot knew how many of them how how many they were right. Um, so um, uh, yeah, and, and but Tony, that is a good point. He can recognize their accent, so he must have met travelers from the Shire before. Yes. So travel debris is not unknown, clearly. Now, Harry, as the gatekeeper, would be the one to meet 100% of the hobbits that come to debris from uh, from the Shire, right? So there wouldn't have to be very many of them for him to have heard it once or twice before. Um, but... Um, but but definitely, I think that you know it does show that it does it does it does happen, um, um, and yes, fourth dauntless absolutely. Mary says that Bucklanders do do it sometimes, right? It's not as common as it used to be, but but it does it does definitely happen. Um, okay, uh, notice thinking about the conversation we had about what signposts you know would be what. What would signposts pointing east from Bree say our conversation last time? Notice one of the things that Harry jumps on is the fact that they're claiming not to be coming to Bree, but to be passing through Bree, right? Um, we are making for the inn here, normal. We are journeying east and cannot go further tonight. Really? Right? So you're just you're just passing through? That's not totally... Unheard of. Um, Lincoln and Catriona want to know if um, uh, 
if Harry's met Bilbo. Scudo points out very accurately that uh, he would have to have been gatekeeper for 17 years in order to have met Bilbo. Um, though Bilbo would obviously have come through and uh, Thorin and company, they, they obviously would have stayed at the Prancing Pony. I mean, there's like no chance they would not have stayed at the Prancing Pony. Had the Prancing Pony been invented in Tolkien's mind, Bilbo would absolutely have stayed at the Prancing Pony. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, well, see, Tellian, it's tough, right? Um, Frodo's in kind of a, a hard place because it's weird for them to just be passing through and passing on. That's very unusual, I, I would you would think. Um but um, but what else is he going to say, right? If he's saying we're just coming to, um, you know, we're, we're like Bree is our destination, then he's going to really ask what their business is. They're not merchants, right? They've not come with goods. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Tillian, we, 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 will, we will see. Frodo is, is not very good at going on the lamb. Right, none of them really are. Um, yeah, um, so he stares at them darkly. Again, he's obviously been gotten to. Harry has uh, by the Black Riders, presumably. Um, you'll pardon my wondering what business takes you away east of Breeze. You notice that's what he fixes on. Like, where are you going? What on earth are you doing? And what may be your names? Right. Um, now, for Thoughtless, I think that this is a really good point, right? Uh, on the one hand, um, on the one hand, it is natural for him to say, well, we're on the look, you know, for him to be thinking to himself, we're on the lookout for, for creepy black riders, as you put it, right? Um, this dude at Bri- is like grumpy and rude, but, uh, you know, he's like, why would they suspect that he's in league with the Black Riders, right? But then again, remember that Gandalf put him on his guard against, you know, the spy, you know, that Sauron has many spies and many ways of hearing from the very beginning, right? Um, and this is clearly one of the things that Frodo is even remembering and thinking about when he's expecting the sinister figure to step out of the closet when uh, the, the, the chief investigator is mentioned in the conspiracy unmasked. Um, you know, so, and, but then, and, and then in addition, remember, they've, they know that the Black Rider offered Farmer Maggot money for, uh, uh, you know, we'll come back with gold. Oh, no, you won't, says Farmer Maggot. That's possibly my favorite single Farmer Maggot line, right? Um, but anyway, um, so we, that we, they have had evidence already of the Black Riders recruiting the assistance of, of, or attempting to recruit the assistance of others. So I'm not sure that it wouldn't, therefore, be on his uh, kind of radar screen that Harry could possibly be working with the Black Riders. Um, yeah, and Tony Gilder did also support that suspicion as well, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, and Mungley, that's a great point. Is Harry the first human they've ever met? Yeah. Sure. Would be, wouldn't it? Maybe Mary and Pippin have been to Bree. I don't think Frodo's been to Bree. Sam obviously hasn't been to Bree. 
So, yeah. Unless Tom Pompadour counts. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Aurora, we'll come back to this next time. Um, Aurora is asking, why do the hobbits suddenly drop their guard? You know, they've just been in terrible danger from the Barrow Whites, right? Um, why do they drop their guard now as they come into Bree? We'll get to it, right? Um, we'll get to that. We'll talk about that next time. As we get into the Prancing Pony, meet Barlam and Butterbur, and uh, they establish themselves, um, we will, uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, yeah, Matt, are there big folk wandering through the Shire that Frodo talks to in his news gathering thing? Uh, I've got to think that big folk, they must have seen big folk. You know the thing that convinces me of that? The gaffer, right? Um, he calls him like a, a strange fellow from foreign parts, right? He was from foreign parts, seemingly. Um, if they've never seen one of the big folk before that, you'd think that that would have to be the very first thing that the gaffer would be like, and he was one of the big folk, one of the big folk, Sam, on our doorstep. Could you believe it? And you missed it, right? I don't think, um, I don't think that he doesn't talk like that, right? He's like, foreigner, right? That's what, that's what Gaffer Gamgee uh, focuses on. So I think that that probably means that, um, uh, that they have seen big folk, at least from a distance, traveling on the road before. Um, so the mere sight of one would probably not be new. Um, yeah, yeah. Mike, you're thinking exactly the same way I'm thinking. I do think that the whole leaving fairy and returning to the real world thing is one of the reasons, Aruron, that's one of my answers to the question, too. Um, everything. Is even like black even with the black riders, right? Everything is more comfortable, more familiar, and they feel more at home. Uh, that, so it's not like we're continuing the Barrow Downs, right? They've they've crossed a boundary. They're, the world of the Barrow the Barrow Downs is a different world, right? And this is a more familiar world. Okay, uh, let's. Uh, Let's move on. So it's time to stop. Thank you guys for joining me. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna do uh, our field trip now. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, shut down the Twitter stream. Thanks everybody uh, who joined us on Twitter here, and we're gonna explore. We're gonna go really far and explore Breetown uh, here tonight. Um, so I'm gonna sign off on the Twitter feed. Thanks guys. Join us on Twitch.tv/signumu to continue. If I can get it, there we go. Stop. All right. Did you walk around the walls last week? I did. I went up the hill. I went up the hill. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, um, we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna have. uh, Oh, look! We've been joined by a giant shrew. Okay. Um, Ah. Hey, uh, Voldemort. (laughs) 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 Hey, 
before we start, I wanted to just uh, let everybody know I got a note from Hologro while we were in class. Okay. Um, he recognizes the fact that there may be folks who would like to run as chickens, and there are requirements for that. So he's going to have a, a workshop to lead people through what they need to do um, on the 10th. Yeah. So the Saturday before your run That's great. at 11 a.m. Eastern, he's going to do that. And you can just send Hologro, H-O-L-O-G-R-O. Uh, an in-game message if you're interested in finding out more. Excellent. Yes, it is true. If you've never done anything, any chicken running before, it is non-trivial. Uh, and that it, it, it's, you have to invest a little bit of time. Um, there are some local chicken quests that you go on, and then you have to, like, run as a chicken from Mickle Delving to Evendim to Rivendell to, to, you know, lots of places. So it takes time. So uh, don't, don't think it's something you can just pick up right before the broadcast. Right, right. So, yeah. um, H-O-L-O-G-R-O, send him an in-game message if you're interested and he can kind of fill you in on yeah. all that good stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, of course, it's uh, uh, Trish Tolkien Maven who has joined us here tonight. Yay! Uh, very good. Thanks for joining us here, Trish. Very intrepid of you to stay up so late. I know. I know. I'm. It's. I'm impressed with myself. <laughs> well, Monica is sick. Yes. And, and I didn't want you to be unaccompanied. So. Well, I appreciate it. It's, you know. It's, it's fun to have somebody to bounce thoughts of during during field trip time. Um, That's right. Yes. Exactly. Oh, and as Hologro was just saying, it's uh, on Landreval that you'll be on doing Landreval. the Sorry, the training yes, and stuff. On yeah. 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 Cool. All right, uh, so let's uh, let's let's head out. Let's let let's go upstairs, and we'll start off by Westgate, coming in the way that the hobbits came in. One of the things, of course, I was thinking about as we as we prepare here for our uh, for our field trip tonight, um, and as I was thinking about the field trip and reading those descriptions of the town that we were getting, I just reminded again of the thing that we observed last time, Trish, one of the things we did last time was we went up on, on the Bree Hill, and uh, of course we were noticing how one of the fundamental changes that they've made uh, in the game world with Bree, they seem to have preserved the size of it. I mean, you know, it says there are a hundred stone houses of the big folk, and I could believe there are a hundred houses here <laughs> in Bree. I mean, that's a fairly substantial town, and it's, you know, we, we, we see that here. Um, we uh, but of course, the diff- the major difference that we see is that it's not on the hill, right? I mean, it's it's a town in the valley underneath the hill, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's you know you could mm-hmm. still call it Bree under Bree Hill, but the way that it's described in the book is clearly on the slopes of the hill, and then with you know with the Hobbit hills up above and the uh, the Hobbit holes up above and the 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 human buildings down on the lower slopes whereas there's really almost nothing there are a few of those hobbit holes that we looked at last time but almost the entire town is down in the valley uh, beneath the hill Um, but my theory is I think that this is just about scale right they can't if if Bree Hill in game were big enough to accommodate a hundred houses it would have to be bigger than Weathertop in game that's true. I mean, it would That's be true. enormous. Uh, so you know, I think that they, um, uh, I think that they um, made a, a, a very sensible choice 
to retain the size of Bree, so that Bree seems like a really major town when you come into it, um, but without um, uh, without over blowing the size of Bree Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so okay, uh, we notice. So looking at the outside of Bree, as we were kind of talking about, you can see the dike here, right? Um, it's interesting that they even have little, like, spiky defenses here, right? As if they're actually anticipating assault. They don't look like they would do a whole lot. No, there are very few of them, right? I mean, they would be pretty yeah. easy to go around. It's almost like decorative. Right, decorative exactly. I, I don't know if these are <laughs> left over or if there's some sort of other function or I don't even know what, but... Um, but it's interesting that we have this kind of retaining wall, right? Which seems to be a retaining wall that is to prevent erosion of the of the of the soil on the other side, right? Rather right. than being itself a fortification. I mean, even I mean, okay, like standing on the ground here, I can't I couldn't quite jump to the top of this. But it's this is not an insurmountable wall by any stretch, right? I mean like if I if I had a little bit more in, in, in the way of ups, I could almost grab the top of this wall, right? So um I don't think that this is really designed necessarily to be a fortification so much as it is uh as I say to be a kind of retaining wall. Um the 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 digging out of the ditch uh is the the sort of main thing, and then there we have the hedge on the inside. It certainly gives the impression of something which is which is defensible, right? It's a walled city. It's not a walled city designed to sustain, you know, the attack of massive armies. I mean, it's not... There's no stone here, right? Um... Uh, there's no ramparts. There's no. There's no. There's no wall you can stand on and shoot off of, or anything like that. Even the the stone bits that we get around the gate um, are not designed like that. There's no gate towers. You can't enter into that over there, right? It's just just little. This ta- standing water here kind of worries me. You know, there's these patches of standing water. It's like that can't be good. You know, mosquitoes and all kinds. Oh, of yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Uh, leading to the increased malaria problem in Bur- in Bur- Right, that of course we know about, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's well documented. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah. So, so these, t- so this, and of course you notice that this stone here, right? The stone of which these towers by the gates are made uh, is the same stone that we can see in the in, as on the foundations of the buildings, right? So we got the same gray stone as the bottom layers of most of this, as well as the walls around town, right? The stables right there. Some of the buildings, which are made entirely of stone. Um, so that that seems to be like the native stone of the region and the sort of older stuff that's going on. But if we go back out for a minute, I know I'm kind of popping in and out of the town here, uh, but, uh, but I really love how Bree is... Uh, is is laid out. Um, it is really fun to play the kind of game that we've been playing in our field trips. That is, looking at the Lotro world as they have built it, as they've laid out the landscape, and seeing what kinds of um, what kinds of uh, uh, sort of lore underpinnings there are behind all this stuff. Right? You know, what is the story? Uh, um, what is the history of these places? Um, at least by implication, um, 
Now, when we go down this way, we can immediately see there is some obviously Arnorian architecture in there, right? So here we have, peeping up above the hedge, some stone fortifications, which are clearly, even from here we can see the star of Numenor right under the arches. Um, but this does not seem to be a uh, a secondary wall or something, right? From the look of it, like from the what we're seeing right here facing closest to us here would seem to be a corner tower, right? So we've got the, this wall stretching off sort of to the east and this one stretching off to the south. And I think if we see the map, yeah, there we can see in the Breedtown map that seems to be represented. So we've got these, these ruins inside the hedge here, which on our mini-map, well, not, 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 not on the mini-map, on the, on the Breetown map, uh, you know, match in icons, right, the, the, the ruins that are on the outside of Bree. Um, so this looks like an Arnorian-like compound inside of Bree, so we should totally go in there and check that out. Um, but let's also continue on because we saw some Arnorian ruins around when we were touring around the outside of Bree, which we did last time. So we also did a, a full circuit around the town, uh, oh, okay. looking at sort of the relationship between Bree and the lands about. And we briefly rode through Staddle and uh, towards Coombe. We didn't quite get down into Coombe last time, but we'll get there. So Okay, so here we are in the south of Bree from this little hillock here we can see alright, see we can still see that th that little chunk of Arnorian ruin in there still seems fairly isolated, right? This is just hedge still, hedge with the wooden retaining wall down at the bottom and all of that Brie wooden structures combined with the stone structures in that grey native stone, right? So that would seem to be again old Brie town right? The original uh, sort of construction style. One wonders, did the Arnorians import the stone? You know, why is it so much more brown? I mean, it's a, a very distinctly different color. This, I find the most fascinating ruin in Brie. In the sense of, like, I just wonder what the story is here. So here, unlike what we saw before, what we saw on the western side of this, uh, the middle of town seemed to be like a, a little Arnorian keep of some kind, like some kind of fortification built by the people of Arnor inside Bree, inside the walls of Bree, but kind of independent of the defensive structure of Bree. This is not independent. This is clearly an Arnorian wall which is built inside the Bree hedge. Right? So do we think that this hedge was planted outside? The, like, which came first, the Bree Wall or the Arnorian Wall, right? We, well, you know, if you look behind us, too, I mean, there's lots of these walls, yes. you know, shards around here, which you almost get the impression there was some other really huge edifice or city or town or something in this area. Yes, that now no longer exists, and we're just seeing little pieces of it. Yeah, we were looking, for instance, at that little that row of, um, you know, that that wall that's right up against the edge of the the lake down there. Uh -huh. um, we're kind of suspecting that maybe that body of, that suge suggests that that body of water is newer than the wall right. because 
like who would build a wall right there, like through the shallows of the lake, right? Um, so uh, anyway, yeah, I, Trish, I agree. I, it, there, when you look, especially kind of standing from here and kind of sweeping around and looking at the whole big picture here, there are too many of these walls and pointing in too many different directions <laughs> to believe that this was just a a boundary of some kind, mm-hmm. right? Um, it does seem likely that there was a, a secondary town, right? A second, right. A, 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 an Arnorian settlement here, it's just south of Bree. Bree town is older, right? So that means that this fragment of wall that's right here on this side of the dike would clearly have been built, you know, later. It would have been part of that boundary, I mean, I still can't really figure out what the boundaries of that town would have been like, right? Um, I mean, where is this wall headed? This way? I guess it would have intersected with those? I don't really know. But yeah, anyway, so this was, that was probably not wetlands, and there was certainly some kind of Arnorian right. stuff here, but, again, but, but that's why, so that interior wall, that's why that interior wall is so interesting. Because this suggests that at least in the south part of the town, the people of Arnor built an additional defense. And I'm going to guess that the hedge came first. You know, that this hedge and and dike is older than the Arnorian wall. um, And that they built the Arnorian wall inside it. Because we know that Breetown is way older than Arnor, as we were talking about in class. So let's see what we can see on the inside when we get around to there. Okay, so now here we have, we've come around to the south gate. Here's the south gate. Now notice how we shift to the native Bree Rock, right? Notice also how we get more of those stone towers down here than we got on the west-hand side. It was just hedge. Where does that start? Hang on, I missed that. Tower, tower, tower. This is the first one, right? Or the last one, depending on how you're counting. Yes, it is. Okay. So just on this south face, we get a few of these, a few extra of these wooden towers. That's kind of interesting. Okay. Um, Notice, by the way, the cliff is the same brown stone, so that looks like maybe the Arnorians didn't import the stone, right? The side of the Bree Hill is itself looks like it could be quarried for the same kind of stone that the Arnorians were using to build their more brownish walls, which just leads you to wonder where did the Breelanders get all this gray stone from? But anyway, let's go into the south gate here and let's head over to look at the inside. So here's that wall on the inside. Now let's see. Do we get the wall? No. See, notice the wall doesn't appear on the map of Bree. Like, we don't even get a wall on the map of Bree. They, the map of Bree d- pretends that this doesn't exist. Now, look at this joint here. Here you've got a piece of the gray Bree wall built off of the decayed portion, right? The crumbled bit. And it works seemly in. So this looks like a... This house has to be... This house has to post-date the wall, Right? This house was built here after this wall was built. And then they just attached it um, by this little newer wall. 
and that's kind of interesting, isn't it? That uh, it suggests that there's been some expansion in Bree since the time of the you know Arnorian fall, be, you know the fall of Arnor, because that house. I mean, I'm looking at like how the houses are situated in relationship to the ruins, right? Like this too. Here's this wooden house, which clearly, when this wall was complete, that house couldn't have been there, right? This wall would have gone straight through the corner of that house. Was this an Arnorian district? Because here we have this is an internal wall, and then we have that out that external wall. So that the external wall is not so much to, um, not so much to to indicate. Or to like sort of just beef up the fortifications down here in the south, uh, but that this whole thing would have been like an Arnorian enclosure. Because here we've got more, we got columns, we've got. Is this the end of it? Yeah, this is the yeah. We're coming up towards the mayor's house, right? So this looks like the edge. Let's see, so where are we now here? So this whole southern bit seems to be an enclosed... Like it would have been at one time enclosed in Arnorian walls. There's some fallen down bits over on this side. We're just getting Bree houses, and there the hedge begins and the wall ends. But... Ah, see, that's an inner partition hedge. Right there, you can see the outer hedge continues on in front of the wall. So here, once again, this new hedge on the inside would be comparatively modern. And, of course, we're still talking hundreds of years old. Um, but uh, this house has been continued here as well. So these houses are new, I then would guess, because this portion of town seems to have been occupied by Arnor. But as the stone has become ruinous and doubtless recycled for some houses, as, for instance, this house right here, you notice this house? This stone house right here on the corner is very different. Notice how different it is from the other houses in Bree. Right? It's stone... But it's not made of normal Breland stone. It's not made of this gray stone that the wall is made of. Or look at the, the difference between the stone of this house and the stone of that, uh, that wall behind it. And you know what I think that's meant to suggest? I think it's meant to suggest that this house was built out of the stone from the... Like it was mined from the ruins, right? Uh, that they, uh, that they, they cannibalized the old Arnorian walls to build this newer house here in the middle of what used to be the Arnorian district of town would be my guess. And of course here we have this tomb which is important and which has a cardolan star and looks just like the tombs that we saw down in the Barrow Downs. Okay. All right, let's keep going around. So if we leave the Arnorian district, let's see if we see any more evidence of ruins. After we are looking at ruin data, 
we'll we will we'll draw some conclusions about the history of Bree uh, and its relationship with Arnor as the game seems to speculate. And notice again, none of that brownstone around here. This is all almost all wood. Right, I'm continuing I'm wanting to find the wall. Where are we now? Okay. We're in here. Alright, there's some more of that recycled brownstone in that house. This is an interesting enclosure. Unusual in Brie, but made out of the grey stone. Mostly. Well, look that on the other side, through those little windows there. We can see some more of that brownstone. But again, lots of ruins down there in the south. Plenty of that brownstone to work with. Okay. Let's keep going around. Let's see. Right, as we come down here into... Yes, the stone quarter. Let's see what we find here. Oh, another Arnorian ruin here in Beggar's Alley. That's random. And there's another one. Just bits. And look at that huge house made of recycled brownstone. Yeah, you can see why it's only bits through here, but what did it used to be? Where are we? Just, okay, so up here to just to the north of us is where we were looking at that first ruin, that first ruin that we saw from the outside. I'm trying to figure out what this was that I'm standing on. A tower? No. It's a corner. Weird. Huh. Interesting that in several places we do get a significant stone wall, and we're this is right on the inside of the hedge, isn't it? Yes, it is, right on the inside of the hedge. So there are places, even in the non-Arnorian parts, where they have built a stone wall inside there. Okay, the old stones gate, old stones ruins, yes. Uh, hey, what do I get when I click on this thing? Ah, History of the Dunedine. Nice. Okay. An ancient crest of the Dunedine carved within the ruins. Well, excellent. Let's look at it. What do we see when we get the ancient crest of the Dunedine? Well... Well, sorry. Um, I seem to be inside somebody else. Okay, there we go. Um, we see... If that's supposed to be the tree, it's an odd rendition of it. It certainly is. It certainly is. Um, I'm not sure what... Have we seen that triton anywhere before? Yeah, that that's the scepter of Anuminus that we've seen elsewhere. Oh, got it, got yeah. it, got it. Yeah, okay, yeah. Got it. it looks a little different there than we've seen in some places, because we usually can't see it this close up. But right. that I believe to be the scepter of Anuminus and six stars. Oh, the one star down at the bottom. Yeah, I didn't count it. Down. What? What's up with that? 
One Star Fallen? Yeah, I, that's... I was looking at it, I was like, why are there six stars? And I yeah. Looked down, and there's, oh, there's a seventh star. How weird. Uh, yeah. I don't remember ever seeing this particular pattern anyplace else. In, no, in Middle I... Earth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I'm, I'm counting leaves on the tree. Ah. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven? Really? Eleven? That's weird. Hmm. So. Yeah, the tree is strange. Is it the white tree? Of Gondor slash Numenor slash Elvenholm, you know. Oh, if it's a Dunedain crest, I can't imagine what else it, it would meant to represent. Um, me neither. Unless it's, I mean, Laurelin <laughs> or something like that. But mm, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. It is a weird tree. Maybe it's meant to be... Hang on, let's look at the... This is a deed, right? So, where's... Hang on a second. Let me see if I can get the, right. de, the deed text. Look okay, at deed text. Right. Uh, okay. No? Uh, here we go. He found a carving with an old Arnorian symbol upon it. It appeared to be the crest of the ancient kingdom of Arthodyne. Specifically, okay. The ruins oh, of that kingdom okay. stretch for miles to the southwest and north. Breetown itself was built upon a crossroads between Arthodyne and its sister kingdom, Cardolan, to the east. Uh, once they were all one great kingdom stretching all across the north, but the folly of men first sundered them, then set them against each other until one after another they fell over the long years of the Third Age. Right. Uh, there are some folk who still remember the tales of Arthodyne, but you suspect that the crest may be of particular importance to the rangers, for it is said they are descended from that bloodline. Right. Okay. Um, symbol of Arthodyne, specifically, is what we're told that this is. Hmm. Hmm. I agree. Hmm. Yeah. The kingdom of that the kingdom of Arthodyne might evoke the tree as a symbol makes sense if it's the white tree makes sense because the kingdom of Arthodyne had the heir of had the line of Isildur, right? Right. And so right, therefore, sure. you know, with the association with the white tree there, so that would that would make a that would make a certain amount of sense. Except, as you say, it's a weird white tree, but but that's okay, I guess, right? I mean, they're not Gondor, so they their iconography would be a little bit different from Gondor. But it's a fascinating choice to represent it like this, because this tree looks... Uh, twisty, right? Old? Yeah, it's it's a little yeah it's yeah it's not yeah it's not what I'm accustomed to in terms of you know having the tree be represented. It's, it's asymmetrical. Of, I mean, yeah. just to state the obvious, right? Um, 
but that's different. Right? I mean, like the the white tree symbol we're used to seeing it be symmetrical, right? Um, so that it is that it is asymmetrical. That we have the emphasis on the roots there, but that the roots and the branches look similar. Um, it looks almost more like a vine than a tree, really. And nobody's wearing the. I was checking to see if anybody's wearing the cloak with the tree on it. But right. Nobody's wearing it. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, you know, the, the what we see in Minas Tirith. What we see in Gondor, yes. the tree is, you know, that is very symmetrical. Right, symmetrical and upright and mm-hmm. spreading. Um, O'Malley says, of course, these, these people never actually saw the white tree, so they would be, you know, it would be natural for them to have something sort of more stylized. Um, I like the concept of the sort of the roots of the tree and the branches of the tree thinking about because that's what it would primarily mean to them right it would be about the lineage it would be about the um, um, ooh that's interesting Rowan of Gondor says um, it looks like that one star is hidden among the roots of the tree that's a fascinating idea um It's hard to see why that would be a symbol of Arthodyne because when Arthodyne was still a thing, it was it wasn't hidden. I mean, like the heir of Isildur is like that's a that's a chieftain thing, right? The concept that uh, you know the, the the star being hidden at the roots would fit the time of the chieftains after the fall of Arthodyne. But it's hard to see why Arthodyne would. And I guess it's not technically hidden. It's not below the roots or anything, right? It's just kind of down there next to the tree. And now. Um, ah! Commander Wilkins is, is has an interesting theory. What if the star is meant to suggest Cardolan? As this is on the boundary between Arthodyne and Cardolan, so we have uh, Arthodyne still claiming lordship, right, with the scepter yeah, up at the top. Yeah, and then yeah. Cardolan is is a is a fallen province, right? A fallen family. So like and this is y'all down here, right, at the bottom of the at the bottom of our thing. Maybe. Maybe. Um yeah, Amathorn likes the idea of the star by the roots being a kind of force foreseeing or premonition of the hiding of the the Dunedine uh in the later line down the road. Um, that would be a kind of a Dunedinish thing, right? If it were. Oh, there we go. Dime has has, has retired herself to show the. Uh, she's got her cloak. She's got on has. The oh tree. yeah. Okay, here like on. we see it in Gondor. She's there. She. Oh, there we go. Right in front of you there. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that's symmetrical. What we're used to yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, with the seven stars. Notice each one of the seven stars in the Gondorian symbol here is a Numenorian star with the long point facing down, right? And, uh, yeah, okay. Interesting that they have the two branches up on top, right? So there's no single sort of spike in the middle. It's intrinsically branched, which is kind of cool, as if to embrace the crown there. Um... 
it's much more tree-ish. We still get roots, but the roots... I mean, look at the difference between the roots of the tree and the branches of the tree there and what we see on this symbol. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um... I'm trying to remember. I don't. We've because we've seen Arthadine type symbols. I remember when we were running around um, North Downs. I guess it was Lonelands. Was it? Uh, you know, like when we were over where the Red Maid was. Looking at those ruins there, it seemed like there was some Arthadine stuff there. But I don't remember ever seeing anything like this. No, me neither. Me neither. Um, I wonder. The stars, Dime's cloak is reminding me, um, all of these Arnorian stars are all pointing up, whereas the mm-hmm. Gondorian stars are the downward pointing, which is, again, the classic Numenorian star, right, right with, the, with the showing the beam of the star pointing down to Numenor, uh, you know, the, 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 the land of the star. Um, so... Um, It's making me wonder. Now, I I remember distinctly. I know for a fact we saw downward pointing stars in Enuminous. And I'm wondering where we begin to see because I didn't notice. We shifted to upward pointing stars by and large here in the Arnorian ruins and I didn't notice when that happened. I'm thinking that this crest isn't as ancient as the Breland folk maybe think it is. Right. I mean, from an Arnorian like, standpoint, it's pretty modern. Yeah, because it's, it's almost like somebody did it who wasn't really in the know. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. <The> kind of <laughs> right. Interpreting oral tradition or something, but wasn't really in the know. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, well, although that's interesting. Commander Wilkins is pointing out that the last undisputed king of Arnor was the tenth king uh, in the line from Elendil, so the first king of Arthodine had claimed to be the eleventh king of Arnor, and maybe that's why the eleven leaves. And if that's true, if Commander Wilkins' theory is correct, then that would date this crest as during the first kingship of Arthodine. Right. Soon after the schism, like in the first generation of the schism. Right. With the kingdoms. That's interesting. That's interesting. But even then, you can one can imagine the sort of, I don't know, sort of decay of lore to some extent. Um, right. That's interesting. But I've gotten away from my original question, which is, what the heck are we on? What is this in relationship with the town of Bree? Because it's getting late, so I should, I can't jump through there like I wish I could. Okay, that's fine. Well, there's the hedge. Right? These are the... And this is the... This is the corner tower that we were looking at from the other side of the hedge. Um, And so we can see from in here that our thought that this was a... sort of more of a fortress than a wall is certainly true. This was a... This is not just a fortification. 
this is a part of now it's gone now. Uh, the walls are broken off and oh, it continues for a little while up this way. Let's keep going. And then it's going to break off before we get to this other street, which, where are we? Right by the taxidermist, right? Yes, we are. Okay. South of the West Gate here. Okay. So it seems like what we're getting here, one thing that, as we discussed before, the text never explains uh, in relationship it's what the deck never really explains because you know we don't get a detailed history of Bree. Is what was the relationship between Arnor and Bree while Arnor existed? We're told that Bree was here before the Dunedain came, right? But what happened after the Dunedain did come, right? Um, as we discussed last time, it could not possibly have been uninteresting from a military and, you know, sort of strategic standpoint to the Arnorians, uh, especially once the Civil Wars began. So, um, uh, so what was the status of this place? So, thinking of what we've seen, what is the history of Bree and its relationship with Arnor as suggested by the game developers and how they've laid out Bree? And the conclusions that I would come to is that there was a time during the height of the Arnorian kingdoms when Bree was sort of living in the shadows of Arnor, right? I agree with Trish that there is a suggestion of this sort of larger and possibly fortified settlement to the south of Bree. It almost looks like they've built um, probably also to take advantage of the crossroads here uh, that the Arnorians came and built a little mini city down there uh, to the south of Bree, but they seem to have more or less respected the integrity of Breetown as it existed. Um, and that is certainly, as we can see with the whole ditch and, uh, 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 and uh, you know, the, the whole dike and, and hedge going still all the way around. Um, but um, we also have them dwelling inside the city as well, right? We have what looked like um, Arnorian districts uh, and buildings constructed there inside Bree and possibly interconnected. I'm thinking of those fragments there that we could see in Beggar's Alley um, suggesting maybe some kind of connection between the, the, the clearly Arnorian district down there in, this, in the extreme south and this um, palace, fortress, whatever it was. I'm suspecting that one of the, you know, the local authorities for Arnor probably lived there as well. And I'm guessing that there was some kind of, you know, complicated political situation where the Brelanders were probably left to mind their own affairs, probably, um, at least initially. Um, again, there's, there, there isn't any evidence that they just took over the place. Right. This is not a. This is not a town. Um, uh, this is not a town that seems to have been Arnorized, right? In the way that, like, a town might have been Romanized after the Romans took it over. Um, it's uh, most of the town seems to main seems to, uh, you know, maintain its sort of original integrity as old Bree town. Um, they did. 
intrude upon it, clearly. Right? But they didn't take it over. They didn't build a whole Arnorian wall around it. They didn't... Uh, um, yeah, again, we don't see signs that you know buildings were torn down and replaced with upgraded, Ar- you know, stone Arnorian edifices or anything. Just in a few places uh, around the edges, so there was probably some kind of cooperation. I'm guessing, right? Um, but there was probably a garrison. I would assume there has to have been a garrison um, of Arnorian soldiers living there in Bree. Uh, one wonders if was this was the town to the south was that Cardolan? Uh, you know, what, what was the adjective we were using? Cardolangian. Uh, was that a Cardolangian settlement uh, down to the south and an Ar- an Arthedinian uh, presence here in the middle of town? That would seem a little uncomfortable uh, to be right on the borders of each other uh, or anything. Um, but. Uh, but I love the overall effect that they've created, right? Um, Bree was here originally. Uh, we can see, you know, it's, it's like we, we get this glimpse of, like, the political and military machinations of the, uh, of the Arnorian culture, uh, you know, the larger, more powerful culture that grew up around it, positioning itself within Bree, building walls outside of Bree, separate, bigger, more impressive from a military standpoint walls uh, than the hedge and dike that they have here. Um, and yet, Bree endures, right? And the walls have crumbled and been recycled uh and uh, the Arnorian bits inside the town have fallen to ruin, and it's now the slums. Uh, but uh, but the rest of Bree Town still stands, and now partly built out of recycled stone from Arnorian ruins, right? Um, and uh, though it does really suggest that back in the day there would have been a really interesting political situation with the people of Bree governing themselves, and yet being right there, you know, with the Arnorians living there among them. Um, and uh, one can imagine that especially during the peak of the Civil War, it would have been, there would have been some tense times between the Bree folk and the people of Arnor. But um, you're right, Emma Thorne, uh, the white stars are shining in the sky above us here, just like they were for uh, Frodo and the Hobbits as they came up uh, to meet Harry Goatleaf. Uh, and we do get Harry's still here, right? Um, this isn't Harry for some reason, but we see him kind of lounging disconsolately. This is he's this uh, grumpy fellow over here, right? There's Harry Goodleaf. Um, I don't know why he's all the way in here. He's clearly not going to be answering that he's not keeping the gate very well. They have two other guards, one on the outside and one on the inside. Um, uh, that seem to be doing more gatekeeping than Harry is here. Uh, so I'm really... I've never been quite sure why Harry... Go- I mean, he needs something to lean on so that he can look grumpy, which he succeeds in doing. Uh, but um, it's 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 kind of... You wouldn't guess that this dude... Like, what this guy's job is is gatekeeping based on where he's standing. Uh, so I've always found that just a little bit... Uh, uh, just a little bit disappointing concerning Harry Goatleaf, but anyway. Alright. Um, I'm gonna, uh, 
I'm going to let you guys go. It is after midnight now and, and uh, uh, time to part. But thanks, everybody, for joining me in my exploration of Bree Ruins here this evening uh, and uh, for our book discussion previous to that. So thanks, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.